This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Michael Gelb. Michael is an internationally recognized pioneer in the fields of creative thinking, accelerated learning, and innovative leadership. He leads seminars for major organizations including Nike, IBM, and Microsoft, and has more than 25 years of experience as a professional speaker, seminar leader, and organizational consultant. Michael is the best-selling author of How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, which has been published in 25 languages. With Sounds True, Michael has published the audio series, The Spirit of Leonardo, and a new book, Creativity on Demand, How to Ignite and Sustain the Fire of Genius. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Michael and I spoke about chi cultivation practices and how engaging in such practices liberates our creativity. We talked about the one Qigong practice Michael recommends as the most important practice for re-energizing yourself at any moment. We also talked about the principles involved in having what Michael calls a creative mindset and how Michael believes that creativity is fully learnable and how one of the keys is learning to embrace uncertainty and use our anxiety creatively. Here's my conversation with Michael Gelb. Michael, you begin your new book, Creativity on Demand, making an observation that I thought was really interesting about how the challenge of our time isn't so much time management as it is energy management. And I thought that was really interesting as someone who is challenged by an intense schedule, that really what many professional people face is this issue of energy management, not time management. So can you speak to that some, what you mean by that? Sure. Well, you remember 20, 30 years ago, people carried around planners yeah, and they went on time management seminars and it was a really big business. I mean, all my, my clients were carrying them and, and, and trying to figure out how to manage their time and it, uh, it didn't really work. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It didn't really work. I mean, fr- first people figured out that, well, okay, it's not really time you're managing, you're managing priorities. Uh, and that was a step forward. But in the last five, six, seven years, there's been a shift where uh, people are coming to understand that energy is the key. And one of the pioneers of that uh, shift is my good friend, uh, Professor Jim Clawson. He teaches at uh, the Darden Business School. Uh, Jim and I actually do a seminar together called Leading Innovation. And 
Jim uh, was one of the first to state that leadership is about managing energy. He wrote this uh, in a book he published years ago called uh, Powered by Feel. Uh, Jim says, leadership is about managing energy first in yourself and then in those around you. And you know, Jim's an academic. Uh, his books are usually published by Harvard Business School Press. And it wasn't until uh, uh, Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz came out with, uh, with their book, uh, The Power of Full Engagement, which became a big New York Times bestseller. They got on Oprah. Uh, and they recapitulated Jim's message in a way that really resonated. Uh, you know, they, they have a couple of uh, key lines uh, that uh, I've shared over the years with my, my clients because they're very articulate. Tony Schwartz is a great writer. Jim uh, Lehrer has worked for years coaching athletes. And he figured out that the secret of high performance in athletics is managing energy. And Tony figured out how to articulate that in a way that really struck a, a chord. Uh, they state that uh, energy is the most important individual and organizational resource. They add that every thought, feeling, and action has an energy consequence. And then they state positive energy rituals highly specific routines for managing energy are the key to full engagement and sustained high performance. Well, in, in Creativity and Demand, I, I cite uh, Clausen, I cite uh, Schwartz and uh, Lair, and then I add simply that the sages of China came to these same conclusions a few thousand years ago. <laughs> and uh, if we can apply that traditional wisdom to our, the challenges of our contemporary lives, well, obviously we're, uh, we're not just making stuff up on the fly. We're utilizing wisdom practices that have been honed and developed uh, for generation after generation. And the great thing is that you know, up until fairly recently, most of that information was not really accessible, certainly to people in the West. And even in China, it was hard to get because just in secrecy, and then it was uh, politically uh, not acceptable for a while. But just in the last 40 or 50 years, this wisdom has come to the West, and it's now accessible to all of us. And I've been figuring out uh, how to apply this with my clients to help them manage their energy more effectively, and it works. Now, a couple questions here, Michael. So it's, it's one thing you've mentioned about managing our own energy, but that a leader manages the energy of the people in the organization. How does a leader do that? Uh, well, it's, it's, it begins, as, as uh, uh, Jim Clausen emphasizes, with your own energy management, because if you are disconnected from yourself, if you are out of balance, you know, leadership, it's, it's a lot like parenting. I mean, kids sense your weaknesses. They don't listen to what you say. They watch what you do. <laughs> and it's the same thing. You can read all the best uh, uh, management books, go on all the seminars, and spout all the right words. But people are reading your energy. They're sensing your integrity. And integrity is not, uh, not just about uh, ethics and morals. It's about whether who you are uh, is in alignment with what you say. And people may not be able to articulate it, although it, it's really interesting. You know, I, I've been working with 
Fortune 500 companies for over 35 years. And 35 years ago, you couldn't, you'd rarely ever hear anybody talk about reading someone's energy or responding to their energy or the energy in a room. And now it's almost common parlance. So there is a shift in consciousness here where people do understand this. So the first point is, is if you're going to lead other people, you have to be constantly working on your own integration. Then it, it's a function of being able to be empathic with others. And that's emotional. It's intellectual, but it's also energetic. Uh, you can feel when you're in rapport with people, there's a, there's a harmony in the energy field. And the people who are really good at orchestrating that, and you know, I'm really lucky, I have to say, uh, I don't get hired by the types of leaders who try to exploit the worker and scorch the earth. <laughs> Fortunately, for the last 35 years, there have been enough uh, uh, visionary people who uh, who really are trying to make a difference and bring out the best in their people. And those are the kind of people who engage me. Uh, so you know, some people call it charisma, uh, which again is one of these ineffable uh, kinds of words, but I think it has something to do with energy. I also think it has a lot to do with uh, coming back to the previous notion of, of priority, that there's a clear sense of vision, that there's a clear sense of direction and purpose uh, that people uh, are brought to because, because the leader understands how to access an alignment with people's deepest values, with their core attitudes and beliefs and expectations. You know, most, unfortunately, uh, too many managers and uh, try to try to make things happen by appealing to people's reason, by giving them the reasons why they should do it. And and when you appeal to people by reason, if you're lucky, you'll get agreement. You might get compliance. Sometimes you just get apathy. Uh, less evolved uh, managers try to appeal to people by uh, carrot and stick, uh, reward and punishment, and and. And then you might get either passive or active resistance. Uh, but uh, what my, my friend Jim Clausen calls a level three leader uh, tries to guide other people by aligning with uh, deeper values, a higher purpose. And the energy, that, that's what, when there is that alignment, then the there tends to be an alignment of the energy, and you can feel it. You know, you you can feel it when you walk into a place. I mean, I felt it when I came to visit. Sounds true. Uh, well, that's wonderful to hear. I like hearing that. But let me ask you a question, Michael, because I hear a lot, both from people at Sounds True and other places. A lot of people. I mean, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm kind of tired. You know, I'm tired a lot. I'm, I'm you know relying on caffeine. So tell me, what are the pith instructions, if you will, the keys to the type of positive energy management that you're proposing really makes a difference? Sure. Well, you know, a motto I've had for many, many years uh, is take breaks or have breakdowns. So just on the simplest level, you work for 60 minutes with total focus, 
you take a 10-minute break. You go back, you work for 75 minutes, come back, you take another 10-minute break. You work for an hour, you take a 15-minute break. And you recognize that breaks are part of doing a fine job of performing at a high level. Now, we know just, just purely from the psychology of memory, for example, we know that if people work at something or study something for 60 minutes and they take a 10-minute break, their recall at the end of the 10 minutes will be higher than it was at the end of the 60 minutes. So you're going to work more efficiently and more effectively. Uh, Tony Schwartz and Jim Lehrer call this oscillation. Uh, and if you're working in a concentrated, analytical, focused way, if you're on the computer, if you're on the telephone, the, it's kind of apparent uh, to anybody paying attention that you want to shift out of mode, that you don't want to, in your break, send text messages. Uh, you'd be better off going outside and breathing some fresh air. Or uh, for years I've taught people how to juggle as a great way to break or meditate or do some drawing, or listen to some beautiful music, something that shifts you out of that driven, analytical, uh, verbally dependent mode. And what if there was a way to, based on thousands of years of study and practice and, and, and lineage transmission, to optimize your ability to recharge uh, in that 10 minutes? Well, there is. And, and, and that's why I was so inspired to write this book, because I've, I've been teaching this kind of stuff for years, but this is a, is a missing link. It's just the most efficient, effective, powerful, simple, elegant way that I've discovered for my clients to recover quickly from the intensity of what they're doing so that they feel really refreshed and and open and clear and attuned and ready to create you're referring to the practices of the Chinese sages, qigong practices and qi energy cultivation. And I'd be curious to know if you could recommend, just for the moment, pretend you could only recommend one practice to that hardworking person in their office life, whether their office is at home or they go to a group office. They're going to concentrate for a while. Now they're going to take a break. What is the qi energy cultivation practice that you would recommend? For a well, I will. I, it's a great question, and I and and there's one clear, obvious answer. Something that that is by far the simplest, easiest thing that anybody can do. There's only I have to just give the caveat is it takes <laughs> it sometimes takes a lot of practice for people to realize just how simple it really is. But the practice that I recommend, my, my dear friend, uh, Robert Peng, uh, uh, is a lineage uh, uh, Chinese Qigong master. And I know you've, uh, you've learned from him and yeah. uh, such a wonderful teacher. And he teaches all these beautiful uh, practices, and uh, a number of which uh, we collaborated and, 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 and shared in, in the context of my book. Uh, but of all Robert's practices... Uh, the one that I found to be most powerful, uh, and Robert will agree is the most powerful, is what he calls nourishing chi. Hmm. And 
this is, you know, if you've ever taken a yoga class, you know that at the end of pretty much every yoga class, certainly everyone I've ever taken, you do savasana. Uh, you, you corpse pose. You lie on, the, on your mat or on the floor, and you're just in a receptive state. And many of the yoga teachers that I've, I've talked to will agree that it's, it's probably the most important part of the class. And when Robert teaches Qigong, you can learn the three treasures standing meditation. You can learn the lotus meditation. You can learn uh, all these beautiful, uh, profound uh, spiritual technologies that have been passed down over uh, millennia. Uh, but Robert will, will <laughs> he actually tells a great story, which I quoted in the book. Uh, uh, his master said to him, he was training you know, eight, ten hours a day, with his master, uh, and he's, you know, at the time he's 12 years old, 13 years old, and his master says to him, you must practice Qigong 24 hours a day. And Robert says, basically, in, uh, uh, in our minds, uh, what he would have said is, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> uh, he said, I was very anxious, I was very upset because you know, I was working so hard, that was impossible. He said, finally, my master explained to me the chi is more intelligent than you are. And all you've got to do is allow it to work for you. Be receptive. Open yourself to the creative universal energy that is always available. So that at any moment, you, know, you, don't, need to, you don't even need to change your posture. You don't have to do some special breathing. You don't have to do a mantra. You don't have to do a visualization. You don't have to do anything. This is the, I mean, this is the revelation that inspired the book because I, I just experienced this, that at any moment, like right now, you can open yourself to the creative universal energy. And by truly opening yourself and just being receptive in any moment, oh, it's... It's the simplest, most elegant, most powerful thing I think anybody can do at any time. Uh, then it helps to learn all these other practices just because our minds are restless and we forget just how simple it is. So it's good to have a ritual and it's good to have uh, you know, various things that you can do that have different metaphoric meanings. And, and you know, I do all those other things too, but my go-to most powerful, simple, elegant practice is just nourishing chi, just being open to it at any given moment. So let's say somebody's listening to this and they're driving in their car or sitting on a subway or who knows, maybe they're sitting outside on a rock, lucky person, and mm -hmm. they're not lying down in the shavasana corpse pose, but are, you're saying that they're somehow going to relax that deeply, almost as if they were lying down, but they're sitting up and they're going to just open and breathe and receive. And that's what you mean by nourishing chi? Well, you, yeah, exactly. You don't have to lie down. You can be sitting. You can be standing. You can be walking. You can be on an airplane. Uh, you can be in a, a hotel, generic hotel room somewhere on a business trip. At any moment, you can open yourself and receive. It's, it's there. It's all around. When you, when you get this, 
when you get that there is, and, and this is something in every wisdom tradition, every wisdom tradition refers to this creative universal energy. And I gave that, to, I, I like acronyms. You know, I work with lots of businesses. They all, they all I, my clients, I call them HACs. It's a high acronym cultures. Uh, so I'm always looking for acronyms to help people remember things. And I, I, I was thinking about creative universal energy. That's C-U-E, which we could abbreviate as Q. And I realize it's intelligent. That's an I. Q-I just happens to be the Chinese word for chi. In Japanese, it's ki. Uh, as in Aikido. Uh, in yogic practice, it's prana. Uh, in Hebrew, it's uh, ruach. Uh, it's a universal uh, notion that people from just about every culture have discovered and experienced. It's creative, it's universal, it's intelligent, it's always available. So, all these traditions have come up with various ways to help us access it, enliven it, store it, and express it. Uh, that's what yoga is all about. Uh, that's what the key practices in Aikido are all about. Uh, that's what Qigong is all about. But all of these traditions all come to the same simple place that it's just available all the time, and the simplest practice is just be open to it. Now, there was another observation that you make quite early in the book, Creativity on Demand, and it's this. You write, creative energy isn't depleted when you use it. Rather, the more you access it, the stronger it becomes. And, you know, that's also very curious to me because I think sometimes people think, you know, God, I spent the whole day and I was working hard on a project, maybe a creative project, and they'll say, I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. And yet you're saying creative energy isn't depleted when you use it. The more you access it, the stronger it becomes. And so I wonder if you can explain that. Sure. Well, I can just tell you about my own experience of writing this book. Because <laughs> it was just... Uh, as much fun as I've ever had. And I just couldn't wait to wake up the next morning and, and, and start writing it. And as I was writing it, after 60 minutes, 75 minutes, okay, I confess, sometimes I wrote for three hours at a time because time completely disappeared and I was in that you know, magical uh, zone. But I stopped and practiced the exercises that I was actually writing about <laughs> and, and felt the energy lifting me like, you know, surfing on a, on a wave. And, okay, eventually you come to the shore. You do have to dry yourself off and swim back out again, but the, wave, the waves are continually flowing in, and it's just a question of catching one. And... Uh, these, I th you know, these simple practices are, are, are you, you know, you, what I tell, what I tell, you know, because I teach this stuff to engineers and, and uh, you know, PhD scientists and 
uh, I'm working with a construction management company. I mean, they're very down-to-earth folks who are not, sure. Uh, you know, the, the flowery language and, and the, they, they, don't, they don't necessarily believe in any of this. And as I explained to them, I said, you don't have to believe it. Uh, you don't have to believe in chi uh, to get the full benefits of this. If you just do the practice, and you know, I can give them any one of the practices that are in the book, we'll do this. They're all 20 minutes or less. I say, just do this. Tell me if you feel better or not. If you don't feel better, don't do it. Everybody says, oh, my God, I just I feel, so re- I feel so refreshed and inspired. That's so cool. How do I learn more? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's what that, it, it works. Now, one of the central themes in Creativity on Demand is how to make this shift from what you call a fixed mindset to a growth mindset or a creative mindset. So first of all, could you just describe these two different mindsets, the difference between a fixed mindset or a growth or creative mindset? Sure. This is based on the, on the work of uh, Professor Carol Dweck uh, at Stanford University. And uh, she's delineated these two mindsets. The fixed mindset believes that uh, talent alone should, should suffice. And if you're not good at it and you can't do it right away, don't bother. <laughs> and I have to confess that that was my mindset when I was a kid. That's how, you know, that's what school seemed to teach, that you know, just do what you're good at. And, and if you're not good at it, don't bother because... Uh, you're hopeless. Uh, you're either smart, you're on the smart academic track, or you were on the uh, uh, the other track uh, and, and, and set for vocational school, and you couldn't develop something that you weren't obviously gifted with. Uh, the growth mindset, on the other hand, believes that persistence and deliberate practice uh, can, in the long term, trump talent. And what Dweck's research over the course of more than 20 years has demonstrated, that is indeed the case, that the growth mindset is, is much more adaptive and that here's the best news. If you have a fixed mindset, if, if, if that is your orientation, you can change. You can learn to develop a growth mindset and that uh, this can uh, improve your uh, you can you can actually learn what you want to learn. You can you can uh, improve in, in in almost any area. And what I've done is uh, apply that to the notion of learning to be creative, because that's an area where a lot of people have a fixed mindset. They say, "Well, I'm not creative." Uh, and you know, the, my my sister was the creative one in our family. Or you know, well, to be creative, you have to be an artist. And artists are crazy and dysfunctional, so <laughs> I'm not going to bother. And so one thing, another thing we've learned in the last 20, 30 years, I mean, I've always known it, but uh, it's great to have academia catch up with what I've been teaching for 35 years, is that uh, creativity, creative thinking, is a skill that anybody can learn. And, of course, it, you have to believe that it's possible. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the... Um, you know about the Pygmalion effect, the original studies that they did uh, with Army drill sergeants? Uh, this, is how, this is how a growth or a fixed mindset affects other people. This relates to your original question about uh, managing energy first in yourself, 
and then in others, that army drill sergeants, who are not, you know, the most, not, not known as the most gullible, soft-headed types, uh, were told that their recruits were far below average. So after the six weeks of basic training, the group of recruits who uh, these drill sergeants were led to believe were below average performed 25% below average. Then they gave them another group, and they said, these people are the best of the best. These are our best recruits. And they performed, after six weeks of basic training, 25% better than the average. Of course, all of them were average groups, and the only thing was, that was different was the expectation of the drill sergeants, hence the name, the Pygmalion effect. And when they debriefed the drill sergeants at the end of this, they refused to believe it. They were sure that the group who underperformed really were uh, underperformers and the ones who were superior really were the top talent. They just couldn't believe it. So in other words, our attitude, uh, whether it's our attitude towards ourselves or our attitude towards other, has a tremendous effect on, on performance. And, and, and this notion, which you know, has been, been uh, around for a long time, uh, the exciting thing about it is it's, 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 it's finally receiving uh, scientific and academic validation. I mean, even the New York Times uh, said in the review of Norman Doidge's book, uh, The Brain That Changes Itself, the New York Times science section, not known for their uh, support of uh, books in the self-help category, <laughs> said uh, the power of positive thinking finally gains scientific credibility. Okay, Michael, but let's say somebody's listening to this and their experience is, you know, I have this friend and he's so creative, he just comes up with songs and jokes and, you know, I'm, I don't, I, that doesn't come naturally to me. You know, I'm, I'm good at other things, but creativity is just doesn't, you know, how, how am I actually going to learn? Oh, come on. You know, I just don't believe you. Well, that's the that's that's who I work with. Believe you know that's <laughs> you know the people who come to my seminars, uh, they're not they're, they're people where the boss sends them. And and recently, uh, the CEO of one company sent me a group of people, and, and he sent out this email with capital letters saying attendance is mandatory. And, and they were all engineers who believe me don't think they're creative. So that's the, our starting place. Uh, and again, it's not a question of like oh you know. I really want you to believe this, and just because I showed you the research about a growth mindset and a creative mindset, uh, that may may soften you up a little bit. But this is a skill that you can learn, and when you see what the elements of the skill are, the elements are simple. The, the uh, first is the the mindset, the orientation, the attitude, and there are specific elements uh, that. Set us up to be successful in approaching a problem, and they're, they're all in in creativity on demand. Uh, and then there's learning the creative process. And you know whether you think of yourself as creative or not, chances are in in uh, elementary school and high school and university or graduate school, uh, you probably didn't have a course in how to think creatively. Uh, you might have had a painting course if you were lucky. You might have had arts and crafts when you were a little kid, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are the strategies, the mindset 
and the process, learning, for example, that there are five phases to the creative process, that there are nine different modalities and that most people are naturally strong in one or two of them and weak in the rest, and that once you learn what these are, you can cultivate them, that there are practices, that there are skills that you know, people come into my seminar and you know, we give them a creativity test, uh, the same one they use at Stanford, uh, and they, they score average. <laughs> uh, you know, they get four or five answers a minute in a, in a test called the alternate use test. Then we teach them some of these uh, processes and practices, which I, I, I put them all in the book. I put everything, I put the best of the best that I've learned over 35 years in this book. Uh, and then they, you know, they score four or five times higher. Uh, and, you know, I got a letter today, actually, from a, a, a this, th these people do sewer and bridge engineering in New Jersey. No kidding. And I got an email from the guy today because I'm helping them write their vision, mission, and values for their company. And, and the guy uh, sent out this note to the whole team, and he said, look, you know, first we tried to do this by, by writing it the way we all learned, and then we tried this uh, technique of mind mapping that, you know, I had taught them in the seminar. And said, we got so many more ideas, and they were so much more creative and so much more diverse. And, you know, my response, I mean, I didn't write this to them, but I was thinking, well, yeah, of course. But it was a true revelation. This is hot off the press this morning. And what's, what's so that's just sort of 101 in terms of the basis of like, okay, here's, here's the creative mindset. Here are the elements of it. Here's the creative process, the five phases, the nine modalities, learn how to do mind mapping, learn how to do a stream of consciousness writing. Uh, you know, these are the most tested, proven techniques for generating more ideas in less time, for making new connections between your ideas, all of which you can learn. And actually, it's particularly fun taking those people who think they're not creative and, and, and sharing this with them because, you know, they get results just like these sewer engineers who wrote to me this morning. It's, it's a wonderful experience for people to, to, to learn a way to get new, fun, different ideas. Uh, and what really, you know, what really inspired me to, to, uh, to write this book is that having taught that sort of material for, for 35 years and applied it myself to write all these books and, and do what I do, uh, I realized that, the, that the, what could take it all to a whole other level would be, okay, what if you had the creative mindset, you had the creative process, and you powered that with the creative energy? What if you could take these ancient uh, technologies for cultivating creative energy, for storing it and expressing it, and link them, find, find the uh, Qigong exercise that best supported each phase of the creative process, that best supported each of the nine modalities. And so that, that's, that's what I did. listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs, 
and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. So now, let me just see if you think this is fair. I mean, a tennis instructor might say, I could teach anybody how to play tennis, but I'm not necessarily going to make a tennis professional out of anybody. So is your basic premise that you could teach anyone how to be creative, but that they might not be wildly and super successfully creative? Or could you teach anyone how to do that, actually? You know, tennis, see, the the difference with tennis is that it does require a certain amount of athletic ability. You can get way, way better than you you are. I used to coach tennis. I actually, uh, I'm a certified uh, inner game of tennis coach. (laughs) I used to teach it, you know, years and years ago. And uh, it's, a re- you know, it's really fun to help people get way better in, in, in tennis. I, I, I've probably taught certainly tens of thousands of people how to juggle. Uh, I've taught Aikido for many years and Tai Chi and Qigong. And people think they're not coordinated. It's a similar thing. And then all of a sudden uh, they realize that this is something that they can learn. And then if they stick with it, uh, people surprise themselves. Now, does that mean that they'll become professional tennis players or Aikido masters or professional jugglers? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, uh, having said that, uh, uh, the I think the limitations on your creativity are much less than the imitation, the limitation on your ability to become a professional tennis player, for example. Uh, because I, I, my, the, if you, you know, it's, it's how many uh, sounds true authors, uh, coaches and gurus does it take to change a light bulb? You know, only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. So if people have the growth creative mindset, uh, they will certainly surprise themselves with how creative they can become, much more creative than they think they are, that's for sure. Okay, so part of what you've done in this new book, Creativity on Demand, is you've linked these traditional qi energy practices with everything that you've learned about creativity and what supports Mm -hmm. it. And one of the points you make in the book is you say the secret of creativity involves surrendering to a higher power. And I'm curious to know how these chi energy practices support, in your view, this surrendering to a higher power and amplified creativity in our life. Well, I think you know, if, if you start to experience this empowerment of your creative energy... I can only say my experience is that it, it it puts me in touch with a sense of connection to something much greater than myself, which has been a, you know, obviously a quest uh, of mine for the last 40 years or so. Uh, 
and I think you know it's the essence of the spiritual quest is we we want to feel connected with something greater than ourselves. But the beauty of this is to then integrate that connection into what you're actually doing every day. So there's not a separation between your uh, going to do your spiritual practice and then having to go to work and have them be separate things, but feeling a sense of connectedness with that uh, sustaining, enlivening, creative energy uh, through the course of your day. So, and, and you know, here's the thing is, whatever you call it, uh, and, and I'm, uh, I don't necessarily prescribe uh, what anyone else should call it, uh, but uh, whether it's the muses, uh, which is the traditional way of thinking about it, uh, a higher power, uh, the divine, uh, nature, uh, that sense, that act of surrendering your own armoring, your own egotism, your own attachment, uh, your own unnecessary tension uh, opens you to the flow of, of this creative universal energy. And, and it's, it's reliable. In my experience, it's, it's reliable. I mean, I, I consciously remember to surrender. <laughs> That's how I start my day. Uh, and the beauty of the practices is they, they, they make it easier to embody that. So it's not just a, a, some, a spiritual notion, but it's an energetic reality in your day. Now, in Creativity on Demand, you talk about seven different principles that have to do with mastering this creative mindset. And there are a couple of them that I found particularly interesting that I wanted to talk to you about. One of them is, the very first one, is you talk about playfulness and being Mm -hmm. able to play more like a child. And I wonder if you could address the serious person out there who says something like, you know, yeah, I hear that to be more creative, I have to be more playful. But look, even when I was a kid, I was like an adult in a little person's body, and that just doesn't come naturally to me. I just play, feel stupid. Like, how am I going to do this without feeling fake and stupid? Yeah, well, you know, one of my favorite practices in the book, uh, and just to to mention that, you know, part of what I, uh, although I've had many, many years of experience and training and teaching uh, Qigong, I thought this was a great opportunity to reach out to some of the great masters of the world and ask them the question, what's your most potent practice that the average person can do in 20 minutes or less to raise their baseline of creative energy? And one of the masters, uh, even though he's so delightful because he refuses to call himself a master, but he really is, and his mastery is partly expressed in his uh, lack of need to call himself a master, is uh, uh, my friend Michael Wynn. Uh, I recently came back from a uh, five-day uh, retreat. I, I taught at Michael's uh, Taoist summer camp, and in exchange I attended his uh, seminar, which was utterly brilliant. And uh, Michael and I were talking uh, specifically about a practice that could help someone uh, like the person you describe, that overly serious person. And, and, and you know, I, I deal with a lot of those people uh, in, in the workplace, in, in seminars, and so on. 
And it turns out that there's this uh, wonderful practice. Uh, it's 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 goes back. Uh, nobody knows when it started. It just seems to have always been around as one of the simplest ways to access creative universal energy and specifically open yourself to be a little more receptive to humor and playfulness. Uh, Because, look, if you think about it, uh, who's got the strongest, most vibrant, most potent, powerful chi? It's children. And who are the most playful uh, beings? Obviously, little kids. So this, this practice is called the inner smile. And it's a lot like what it sounds like. You, you just practice smiling internally. And if you just think about doing it right now, even as, as people are listening to this, just have a little smile, but just from the inside out. So it's not a goofy uh, external smile. Nobody needs to know you're doing it. It's, it's kind of like, I see, I think Leonardo da Vinci was on to this because it's what the Mona Lisa it's her expression. It's, it's Da Vinci's St. John. Uh, it's this little inner smile. And then you let that smile expand through your entire being. And, and in the book, we take you through it, uh, smiling into your heart, smiling into your, your kidneys, your gut, uh, your legs, your feet. And the other whole body, body experience this sense of uh, this inner smile, and if you try it, just try it, you'll probably feel a lot better, and you'll probably feel just a little more lighthearted, and maybe just a little more receptive to being playful. That's great. It's wonderful. Thank you. Now, one of the other principles you talk about, and I found this really interesting, persistence in the face of uncertainty. And here's one of the things you write. You write, the ability to embrace ambiguity and endure confusion is one of the most distinguishing characteristics of the creative mindset, embracing ambiguity and enduring confusion. Can you talk about that? Sure. This is is the essence of the creative process because if it's really creative, means you don't know it yet, means you haven't discovered it yet, means it's really going to be new. It's the nova in innovation. It means it's really new, which means you have to give up what you expect or think you know in order to discover something new. Now, untrained people call that anxiety. <laughs> it, it can be, it, this is such a, 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 a healing and transformational revelation for people to get, is that that not knowing is, is a movement in the right direction. And that if you can learn to push the boundaries of your ability to be uncertain, if you can overload your mind with possibilities, 
to the point where you can't possibly rationally hold on to all of them. If you can, in other words, give up the illusion that you are controlling the situation, you learn another kind of control, which comes back, it's this control of shifting into the receptive mode. Because, look, I've I've been, as I mentioned, I've been doing this for many, many years. I've asked people all around the world. I say, where are you physically located when you get your very best ideas? And the number one answer around the world is the shower, uh, followed by the bath, uh, resting in bed, driving in my car, out in nature. Almost no one ever gets their best idea at their job or at their desk or when they're even at a brainstorming session you don't get mm-hmm. uh, you don't usually get a breakthrough idea but that doesn't mean you shouldn't brainstorm what you want to do is brainstorm to the point of overload you want to use up all of the things you think you know you want to get to you say at last we've gotten to the place of complete frustration Except now it's not frustration anymore because you say, now we're getting somewhere because we've burned through all of our habitual ways of thinking about this. Now, if you're, you know, readers of this book will say, okay, now we'll do a, a, one of the chi practices and then we'll take a break. And we're going to carry our notebooks with us because by stimulating the associational network of the mind and pushing it outside of its normal uh, synaptic grooves, opening up, uh, creating a ferment of neurotransmitters, searching for a new connection, and then taking the break and sleeping on it, the, the odds of you waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning or taking that shower or being out in nature and getting an unexpected aha insight go up dramatically. And imagine, imagine how delightful it is, how your confidence in your ability to solve any kind of problem in your life would rise dramatically if you could just learn to trust this process. And you know, I, it, having, having worked with this process for many years myself and having shared it with others for many, many years, you know, I, I'm just, I'm always looking at how can I make it even more streamlined and effective and potent for people. And again, you know, the only thing that's better than what I told you is a brainstorm and then take a break and carry your notebook is uh, uh, brainstorm, do a cheap practice, take a break and carry your notebook. You write in the book in this section about being able to embrace ambiguity. You write that one of your mottos is to always use your anxiety creatively. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious about that because I could imagine someone who feels anxiety and it, maybe it's about an unknown situation in their life, it's related to their career or something they're working on and they're quite upset. And, you know, they're anxious. They're really anxious. How am I going to use it creatively? I mean, what I'm doing instead is, you know, biting my nails, overeating, calling a friend and talking in a circle. That doesn't seem very creative. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, the, the unconscious, uh, destructive acting out of the anxiety isn't. So we have to bring in consciousness, bring in awareness. And you know, here, I'll tell you the real the real simplest thing here and this is an act of 
tremendous courage for anyone who experiences anxiety. It's to learn to be with it. It's to know when you're anxious. I mean, if you can just know when you're anxious, if you can acknowledge it, if you can be present with it, now you have freedom. Now you have possibility. Okay, then what do you do? Exactly. Yeah. My own personal experience is that I can't meditate. I mean, I've been meditating for many, many years, but the last thing I want to do is sit down and meditate in the face of that. Uh, But what would be perfect for somebody like me who, you know, I came out, uh, I started out uh, way high on the anxiety scale. That's why, you know, that's why I've learned all this stuff and learned to teach all this stuff. Uh, What if there was a way to get that experience of that calming, soothing, harmonizing oh, feeling that you get you know, in a really good meditation. But what if you could move? What if there was this, this moving meditation uh, developed over thousands of years by adepts who passed it along? And what if there were different moving meditations you could do uh, based on uh, the way you you know, the way the anxiety is hitting you at a particular moment. So you become aware of it. Okay, what am I going to do with this? Well, you know, all these practices uh, that I put in the book, they're all things I do uh, and that work for me and that seem to work for my students. And and, and I I expect that they're going to work for our readers. What would you say has been the hardest part of liberating your own creativity? the thing that you sort of hit your head against the most? Uh, I would say that it was that, you know, when I grew up, I had a fixed mindset. And I just thought, and I did not think of myself as creative. Uh, I was not, you know, I was athletic. And I just like sports. Uh, And that's, you know, that was my my focus. And uh, when a... I went to college, and it was a time of uh, Vietnam War and all that sort of thing, and the world seemed crazy to me and divided in two camps. Actually, it still does. <laughs> but uh, it seemed to me that the, the most important knowledge that we could have would be about the workings of the mind. And I figured if I, you know, maybe I could make a difference in the world by learning more about how the mind worked. Moreover, I also thought that perhaps this would help me uh, just understand myself better and, and feel happier and know what to do with my anxiety. So, you know, I studied psychology, except I noticed that my psychology professors, as brilliant as they were, all seemed to be kind of really anxious and, and, and not, uh, not really good role models for what I was looking for. And uh, uh, I switched my major to philosophy, and that was fascinating. But, uh, again, it was sort of empty and sterile, and there was no real connection to, to the being of the people who were teaching it. Uh, so I, I started studying meditation. I found an extraordinary teacher of meditation and self-observation and self-awareness when I was 19. 
and I realized, okay, that's, that's, this is my path. And just 40 years ago this year, I went and spent a year uh, with a master teacher of meditation who did embody the qualities that I was, that I was seeking. And in the course of this year, I had this epiphany when I was younger, part of why I was anxious is I felt like the universe was empty, uncaring, uh, uh, vast, and that we were utterly significant and our lives were, were, were meaningless. I, I, you know, as a devotee of Woody Allen, uh, you know, who asked the key question, uh, one path leads to misery and emptiness, the other to depression and suicide. Which one shall we take? <laughs> uh, and, and when I spent this year uh, meditating with this uh, extraordinary teacher, I had this uh, this understanding that, okay, uh, the universe is vast uh, and infinite, and there is it's a fundamentally a, a void emptiness, but out of that is unlimited creative power and potential. And Okay, so I had that understanding when I was 20, 21 years old, and I said, okay, the real creative challenge for me was, what am I gonna, how am I going to translate that into the marketplace? How am I going to find a way to manifest in the world? What will I do? And I went through a very, very challenging time where I, you know, I thought of going to medical school, but in those days they didn't have, uh, they didn't have holistic functional medicine programs like we have today. I thought I thought of going to a, a graduate school to get a PhD in psychology, but again, you had to study neurosis and psychosis. There were no programs. P- positive psychology didn't exist, uh, and so it was a very challenging, difficult period. But uh, through some delightful synchronicities, uh, I found the path that I have pursued, uh, and and this is the latest expression of it. Now, Michael, I want to just end on this one note. There's a lot of things I could talk with you about, but I'm going to end on this note, which is you talked about how part of the process of liberating our creativity involves knowing our sense of purpose, that when we know our sense of purpose, this helps us master what you call the creative mindset. And I'm curious, how would you help someone who has been struggling with finding a sense of purpose, how can they connect to that, and how will it affect oh. their creativity? Oh, it's perfect because it relates profoundly to the previous uh, question we discussed. Because uh, when you don't know your purpose, and, and in the book I, I, I share the exercises I, I, I do with people in, in seminars and workshops on, on how to help clarify this, but when you don't know your purpose, I can tell you what it is. It's to figure it out and to recognize that that may mean an embrace of a lot of uncertainty. But that if you persist, if you truly make it your purpose to discover your purpose, if you hold that question in your mind and heart on a daily basis, it will come. And that when you get a sense of, of clarity about why you're here, it, it, it does wonders to organize and empower 
your energy for the fulfillment of that purpose. Okay, Michael, and just one final question. Our program's called Insights at the Edge. And one of the things I'm always curious about is to know what someone's current edge is. And what I mean by that is right now in your life, if there was some type of growth edge or challenge that you're working with, and you can be as vulnerable as you want to or not, but, you know, a creative challenge that's really something that's alive for you right now, an edge, what would you say that is? Well, I mean, the thing is most alive for me now is everything we've been talking about and the, the, you know, the integration of this uh, study of Qigong uh, to bring this material to life in, in what I hope will be a transformational way. And in order for that, you know, I talked before about uh, aligning and, 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 and integrity. So uh, I'm really serious about that. And my own edge has been to just deepen my practice so that I am as aligned as I can possibly be with every single word in the space between the words in this book. And I mean, literally, I mean, I just came back from a five-day uh, retreat with Michael Wynn. Uh, I'm leaving for a, a seven-day retreat with another, uh, with a lineage Chinese master on Friday. And then I come back uh, uh, from that and I'm flying to New York to do a six-day, all-day retreat uh, with a, a, a grandmaster on, on qi healing. So I'm, my edge is to just deepen my own mastery of this so that when I represent what's in these pages, it's as, as deep and true and alive. And, and I mean, this is the, this is the edge, is, is just uh, making this as real and, and, and enlivening for, for others by making it that way for myself. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Michael Gelb with Sounds True. Michael has just released a new book called Creativity on Demand, How to Ignite and Sustain the Fire of Genius, a book that is filled with practical exercises, qigong exercises for connecting with creative universal intelligence, and for developing a creative mindset and mastering the creative process. With Sounds True, Michael has also released a six-session audio learning series on the spirit of Leonardo, seven steps to self-realization from history's greatest genius. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks for everything that you're sharing to really be in total integrity with the work that you're putting out, which is so helpful to people. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.